I'm really excited. Uh, I'm trying to compose myself because I'm really excited about today. Um, so, of course, we're celebrating Resurrection Sunday, and we're confident that Jesus is alive. Amen? Yeah. So now we're going to be looking at the events of the resurrection story, but the only way to get the full picture is to read all four Gospels. Don't worry, we won't read all four today. But the reason we need four Gospels is because uh, the Gospels, they complement each other, and you'll never get the complete a picture of Jesus until you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, we often uh, create uh, these theories about, well, which gospel do we read first? But we need to have this simultaneous connection with all four gospels to understand what's happening. Now, there are several reasons why God gave us uh, these gospels. And I want us to look at three reasons why God gave us these gospels. I'm going to go right into it. The first reason is that they provide a complete picture of Christ. Um, each of these authors had a distinct purpose behind why they wrote their gospel. Um, they emphasized different aspects of the person and ministry of Jesus. Uh, the second reason is that they enable us to objectively verify the truthfulness of each account. Um, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says that the court of law required the testimony of no less than two to three people for something to be valid. So it's, for something to be validated, you have to have two or three eyewitnesses. So the independent nature of the four Gospels, they might have different perspectives, the amount of detail that they share, or which events they document. But in the end, they validate that the information we have about the life and ministry of Jesus is factual and reliable. The third reason is that they reward the curious minds. Do we have any curious people inside here? People who can't just take surface things? There's a few curious minds here, right? We gain uh, a lot from an individual study of each gospel, but you gain more by comparing and contrasting the, difference, uh, the differences between the specific events of the accounts in, in, in Jesus' ministry. The same is true for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, the resurrection of Jesus is found in all four Gospels. But you get rewarded with the complete story by combining all four Gospels. Now I'm going to read uh, Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10, and then I'll share uh, the resurrection story within the context of all four Gospels. Is that all right? So Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10, I'll read for you. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. 
The woman ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Lord, I pray that as we go through the remainder of this teaching, that you'll open our hearts to receive all that you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here's what we just read in Matthew 28. In verse 1, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. In verse 2, there was a great earthquake. The angel of the Lord rolled away the stone from the tomb. In verse 4, the guards were terrified. In verses 5 to 7, the angel spoke to the woman. In verses 8 to 10, the woman saw Jesus. Now, regarding the resurrection, the information that each author provides is not based on sequence of events. Um, when someone asks you, well, how's your day, maybe even today, you don't worry about the sequence of events. You just worry about the accuracy. So you might say, well, we had a great service, and we had dinner. And then you say, oh, yeah, and I had a great breakfast. So it's not necessarily the sequence, but more so the accuracy. The writers are not focused on the details of the resurrection. They're focused on validating the resurrection, the accuracy of the event. We spoke about Deuteronomy 19.15. They had to make sure that two or more people would validate this claim. So let me define what I mean by resurrection. Resurrection is the act of rising from the dead. Pretty clear, straightforward, right? Now, I tried to summarize the story with the time that we have today. So in case you're saying, well, this is missing, you can read it when you get home. So let's read the resurrection story within the context of all four Gospels. When you read all four Gospels, the resurrection story begins with Jesus already outside the tomb. He's already outside the tomb. Our mission today is finding Jesus. And that's the title of this teaching finding Jesus. And then I'm going to share the significance of that discovery for us as followers of Christ. So let's understand Jesus is already outside the tomb. So now, so now let's continue with the remainder of the story. Matthew 28, verses 2 to 4. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow, the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. So after this encounter with the angels, the guards who were watching the tomb have left, and they went to tell the chief priests what they had witnessed. Later in, in the same chapter, in verses 11 to 15, we're told that the guards received a bribe to say that the disciples came overnight and took Jesus' body. So the guards are the first ones to notice that the tomb is empty. According to scriptures, at least six women, most of whom were traveling from Bethany, um, they're making their way towards the tomb early Sunday morning. And I have a little graphic you can see. So I'm going to give you the names of the six women. The first one is Joanna. Now, Joanna, she helped to support his ministry financially. Um, she was the wife of a rich and powerful man named Chusa. 
Now, Luke 8 lists actually several women who, were support, who supported Jesus' ministry. And so she's one of them. So don't think that Jesus was this poor guy who was aimless at doing ministry. He had a team of people, and John 13, 29 tells us that Judas was the treasurer. Um, so he wasn't just, uh, so when you, saw, when you see this, you had, it was, uh, Susanna was also another woman and that we find in the same chapter. Then we find uh, Mary Magdalene. She's the first person to see Jesus alive. We also have Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of James, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Salome, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So now you got to see why we have to read all these Gospels to get this simultaneous um, picture. And so we have four different Marys, you know, so... You know, I'm not sure if that's one of the reasons why they get to say Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, just a lot of Marys. So one of you ladies here probably would have been named Mary if you're living back then. Just say Mary, get it right. Mary Magdalene is a prominent woman in all four Gospels. Um, you'll mostly see her name, but understand that she's generally not alone. There is something interesting about the woman that we see here. They were very determined because the guards who crucified Jesus are guarding the tomb to ensure that no one would get into the tomb to remove the body. So they had zero chance of getting inside the tomb because the guards were standing at the entrance to ensure no one gets in. And yet, the greatest concern for these women weren't the guards. The greatest concern was in Mark 16, verse 3. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So they had a plan to get past the guards. They just needed help to roll away the stone. Now we get to John 20 in verse 1. Again, early in Sunday morning, while it was still dark, so John's given us some context, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they're trying to figure out how do we move the stone? Well, they get help. The stone is already rolled away. But there's one problem. Luke 24 and verse 3. But when they went in into the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Notice how all the Gospels have given us the full story. So the women realize the stone is rolled away, the body of Jesus is gone, and the soldiers are also gone. At this point, Mary Magdalene, she runs to where Peter and John are staying in Jerusalem to let them know that the body of Jesus is gone. Do I have another slide here, right? Slide, there we go. See that pink slide, that pink uh, arrow, so Peter and John are in Jerusalem. If you understand the crucifixion of Jesus, they were following Jesus from afar off. Because if you remember, they were trying to not just crucify Jesus, but also those who were followers of Jesus. So the other disciples were afraid, and they went back to Bethany. If you remember in, in, in John, they were concerned initially when Jesus was saying, let's go back to, to Jerusalem, or at least to Bethany, to take care of Lazarus. So they didn't want to go there. So 
So these guys are now back in Bethany. Maybe they're staying close to where Martha was. While Mary Magdalene runs to tell Peter and John, some of the other women are returning to Bethany. They first stopped in the city to report what they had seen to Clopas, a few of, you know, one of the disciples. And Clopas, if you remember, he was one of two disciples that were actually walking on the way to, to Emmaus. So that's why his name is so important. So more than likely, Mary, his wife, went with others to visit um, Clopas in the city. Now let's pick up the story where, where Mary Magdalene arrives to where Peter and John is staying in, in Jerusalem. When Mary Magdalene told Peter and John, they did not believe. John 20, verses 3 to 10. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. So this other disciple is actually John. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' face, Jesus' head was folded and lying apart from the other wrappings. See, he's a kind of a neat freak, right? Wrapping the, folding the clothes, you know. I, you know, I guess you guys should always make your bed. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, talking about John, also went in and he saw and believed. See, before they didn't believe. Now they believe. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Notice what's happening in our story. Mary Magdalene is also heading back to the tomb but those guys ran ahead of her. John 20 and verse 10 says, Since Jesus wasn't in the tomb, Peter and John left and they went home. Now, if that's how the story ended, it wouldn't be enough to confirm the resurrection of Jesus. Because what? You can't have a resurrection without a body. So where is Jesus? When Peter and John went home, Mary Magdalene is still searching for the body of Jesus. As far as she's concerned, if Jesus is alive, she wants to see him. And if he's not alive, tell her where the body is so she can still see him, anoint his body, because that was the purpose of going to the tomb. Mary Magdalene is mentioned 12 times in the other Gospels. In fact, she's mentioned even more times than some of the other apostles. So she's a prominent follower of Jesus. She's probably remembering the miracle that Jesus performed in her life. In Luke 8, she was cleansed from seven demons. She had evil spirits, different diseases, but an encounter with Jesus changed her life. Church, when you encounter Jesus, your life will never be the same. Is that right? Amen? So Mary Magdalene is not giving up until she finds Jesus. In other words, Peter and John, you can go home. But I came here to see Jesus, and I'm not leaving until I see him. She's saying, I can't simply accept an empty tomb. I need an explanation as to why his body is not here. 
So she goes back to the tomb. John 20, verses 11 through 13. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. So something caught her attention. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Where is Jesus? To find out the response by the angels, we have to go back to Matthew 28, verses 5 to 7. Then the angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead just as he said it would happen. Come, see where his body was lying, and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. Mary Magdalene is still filled with grief. After the angels gave her this instructions for the disciples, she's fearful, still crying, but willing to go. Jesus wants this for all of us. Being willing to go, even when we don't have the details. Still being willing to go. It's in that moment of obedience, he shows up. John 20, verses 4 to 16. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. So first she was talking to the angels. Now she's seeing this person as she's leaving. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Church, now we have a resurrection. Because before, all we had was a missing body. The persistence of Mary Magdalene led her to a discovery of our risen Savior. So she is the first person recorded in Scripture to see our risen Savior. Jesus is not in the grave. He is alive. The first thing Mary Magdalene did when she saw Jesus was to offer worship. Now, the reason I spent so much time going back and forth between the Gospels is that I want you to understand the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. Jesus rose from the dead and affirmed our faith as true. This truth became the substance of the sermons preached by the early church. Peter preached the resurrection in Acts chapters 2, 4, and 10. Stephen preached the resurrection in Acts chapter 7. Philip preached the resurrection in Acts 8. Paul preached the resurrection in Acts 9 and chapters 13 through 28. And here we are more than 2,000 years later still preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What this tells us is that the priority of Christian preaching 
is the resurrection of Jesus, not the cross. I know we, you know, we have crosses in our buildings, and maybe you have a cross like me at home, in, in your homes, I have several. Maybe you even wear a cross around your neck. And I know we have a lot of great songs about the cross. Yes, the cross is the fundamental to our faith because it's the vehicle for the atonement of sins. But scripture is clear, just before you guys try to cancel me. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 7. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. But we know that we're free from the guilt of our sins according to 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As you can see, if there's no resurrection of Jesus, if no one sees the risen body of Jesus, everything about our Christian faith falls apart. There are so many reasons Jesus rose from the dead. But he also rose to show us compassion. Isaiah 30, verse 18, it was prophesied. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. We were chosen by God to be the recipient of his compassion. So here's a reminder for all of us. Compassion moved Jesus to tears. When Jesus came into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, we talked about it last week, as he came to the Mount of Olives, he paused along the road and wept over the city. Luke 19, verses 41 to 42. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus desires for no one to die in their sins, and yet so many people rejected him. And even today, even now, we see so many people reject the risen Lord years and years throughout history. John 1, verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. After the sin of Adam and Eve, there has been this longing in the heart of God to be gracious to us. He has this longing to express a grace that cannot be earned. So God sent his son, but he was rejected by humanity. Even with this rejection, God still desires to rescue us, to offer us forgiveness. There is this never-ending desire to show us compassion, and even while we are rejecting him, he's still saying, no, I'm here, I'm sending my son for you. Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The human condition is sinful. We do bad things, we think bad things, we say bad things. 
Our sin nature makes it impossible for us to be reconciled with God. So we need a compassionate Savior, and his name is Jesus. God knowing our dilemma, he sends Jesus to die on the cross for us. But when he came, we said, nope. So Jesus is weeping over the city, and the question on his mind is the same on our minds today. How could you not want what's best for you? How could you not want to be reconciled with your creator, to receive the forgiveness of sins? Jesus came to offer his life that we may have life and have it more abundantly. But more importantly, that we might have life and have it eternally. Not only did compassion move Jesus to tears, but compassion moved Jesus to endure suffering on our behalf. Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha. It was right outside the walls of Jerusalem. You might hear some refer to it as Calvary. You guys hear that before, Calvary? We sing songs about Calvary. Um, we also sing about on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross. You guys know those hymns? Okay. You guys always make me feel like I'm an old man. So I should never talk about hymns anymore, huh? Golgotha means place of the skull. Now here's a picture of this place. This is what it looks like, but I also want you to see this artistic rendering. Notice the projections of the rock and how it looks like the face of a skull. This is where Jesus was crucified. His crucifixion was marked by suffering and was intended to be a slow and painful death. Historically, many people died from the floggings they received even before they were crucified. The Bible tells us that Christ was so severely flogged and beaten that he was unrecognizable. It was prophesied, Isaiah 52, 14. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. So Christ was tortured for us, and he did it willingly. The compassion he had for us caused him to endure shame and suffering. Christ's death was public and was painful. But it was part of the divine will of God that Jesus should be sacrificed for the sins of the world. How do we know this? Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Why did Jesus have to suffer this way? Why such a brutal crucifixion? And after all, they could have hung him or they could have cut off his head. And yet he was beaten to where you couldn't see his face. Well, we've already established that man is sinful and deserves condemnation. But in God's gracious provision, he put in place a sacrificial system called the Old Covenant, 
You guys have heard of that before. Yes? Yes? Thank you. So the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we read from Genesis through Malachi. In the Old, you know, the old Covenant, forgiveness of sins was temporal. The guilty sinner needed to offer an innocent lamb repeatedly for the atoning of sin, the atoning sacrifice. The exchange of an innocent lamb for a guilty sinner. We have an innocent lamb. My wife often says that she, you know, doesn't like to eat animals that look, you know, so beautiful. Well, too bad because I'm cooking lamb today. I usually eat curd goat. Since I can't get goat, I eat curd lamb. What can I say? The sacrifice of that lamb would be accepted by God, and thus the atonement would be made for the guilty sinner. What we find in the New Testament is the new covenant, Matthew through Revelation. God implemented a permanent way for us to be reconciled with him. No longer under this sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So God offers his son to die on the cross as the Lamb of God. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven. So Jesus became the great exchange. His sinless life for our sinful lives. But if Jesus traded place with us, Many would argue that it was simply a noble deed. So in the most gruesome sense, we needed Jesus to be tortured until his face was unrecognizable. We also needed him to be, you know, pierced in his side. We needed him to be nailed to a cross and be buried in a borrowed tomb just to prove he was the Son of God. But most importantly, we needed Jesus to rise on the third day. Jesus is the only one who can offer what we needed to receive our forgiveness. If we go back to the I am statements that we discussed in our last series, each statement was intentional and tied to a significant cultural moment. Let's just look at those statements again. Seven I am statements that we have, I'm the bread of life. We remember that, right? Christ fed them bread. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All these statements were tied to a cultural moment. The crucifixion of Jesus took place during Passover week. Part of the Jewish celebration is a cedar meal. You guys ever know about cedar meal? You can see the cedar meal. One of the staple in the cedar meal, as you guys are making fun of me, is lamb shank. People were sacrificing lambs for the atonement of sins, and then they used the lamb shank to prepare the meal during the Passover. Look at the intentionality of God. At the exact moment that Jesus was being crucified, the Passover lambs were being sacrificed 
on the Temple Mount a few hundred yards away. Think about that. Remember how Jesus waited until the Feast of the Festivals? We talk about how he was in the Temple Mount and they had all the candelabras with the lights. And he waited until they had all these lights and says, I am the light of the world. Remember we talked about that in the this, in this series? Now God orchestrates this moment on Good Friday for his son to be crucified. Being crucified during the Passover celebration. But at the same time, the innocent lambs are being crucified. This was God's way of saying, you've been doing things through the lens of the old covenant. You're offering your own lambs for forgiveness. That was a temporary plan. God was saying, stop what you're doing. He's saying, stop. John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate lamb, the eternal sacrifice that you need. That's what God was saying to them. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. Here's what I want you to understand. The resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus had power over death. He was rising with power to show compassion as this triumphant moment for every believer. Acts 2, verses 23 to 24. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. In other words, although Jesus was crucified as our Passover lamb, there's nothing to worry about because God prearranged everything. Let me also encourage you that you must believe that even the impossible moments in your life, the situations that you seem that it's impossible, was prearranged by God. We often ask, God, do you care about me? Yes. He knew the things that would happen. Yes, we cry and we get frustrated. But God knew this prearranged plan. Mary Magdalene is searching for answers. Where is Jesus? I can't accept that this is how the story would end. She watched his lifeless body sealed in a tomb. And she came early Sunday morning with tears in her eyes. She'll want to anoint the body of Jesus. But he's not there. The guard's not there. But the guard's work wasn't our problem because she already knew, I'm getting into that tomb one way or another. What's your determination when pursuing God? Are you easily distracted? Are you easily frustrated when things are not going the way that you think it should be? Now that Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, she's saying, I won't accept that the body of Christ is missing without an explanation. Where is Jesus? Peter and John have gone home, but Mary Magdalene says, I can't live here like this. That might have been your story. You had an experience with Jesus, 
but now you can't, you know, see him in this situation. You're wondering, where is Jesus? But you're saying, no, I can't give up. I refuse to give up. You remember barely hanging on to your faith, tears in your eyes, because you're not seeing the results that you want. And just when things seemed hopeless, just when it seems like God's prearranged plan was a failure, that moment when you're about to accept, like, maybe this is how life is supposed to be. You turned around like Mary Magdalene because you heard your name. Mary! It's Jesus calling your name. The moment when you're about to give up, you waited long enough to find who you've been looking for. Mary Magdalene fell to the floor and she offered worship. She's found the risen Savior, and his name is Jesus. Let me remind you that Jesus wants us to have a supernatural experience with him. What effect does the resurrection of Jesus have on your life? What is the posture of your heart? Is Jesus your priority? See, it's impossible for us to celebrate Easter and not be moved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some might view Easter as another holiday, you know, gather with friends and families, and maybe you, you go to the Easter egg hunt. But Matthew 28 tells us that Easter is an earthquake with a stone rolled away from the tomb. See, a man who is supposed to be dead is no longer in the tomb. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a glimpse of a new world. A world where physical death is not the end. Where injustice is made right and where an innocent suffering is vindicated by the interruption of a powerful God. In a few moments, we're going to be having communion. I invite the worship team to come forward. The angel of the Lord came down as one final act to demonstrate that God has just interrupted death. So if you're living in sin, Christ wants to interrupt the way you've been living. Will you trade in your way of living for the righteousness of God? Seeing these women traveling two miles traveling two miles, they weren't sure what to expect. Maybe you're here and you don't have the relationship with Jesus we're talking about. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. And you're saying, well, what's going to happen when I get saved? Well, these women, they didn't know what's going to happen. But they took a leap of faith and saying, just maybe when I get to the tomb, the very least I could anoint the body of Jesus. But when they got there, the body wasn't there. And Mary Magdalene is saying, well, the body's not there, but if the body's not there, then something happened. And I'm saying to you the same thing. If you put your trust in Christ, you may not feel like something is happening in the moment. But over time, you see a difference in your life. For some of us, or maybe the rest of us, who might say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm sure there have been moments in our lives where we were wondering, God, will you show up? That was the question. Where is Jesus? 
I'm here to encourage you that if you stay there long enough, you'll find who you've been looking for. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we're just grateful for your word, your word that reminds us that even though this lifeless body was placed in a tomb, Sunday morning, you sent angels to open the tomb, not to release you, but to open the tomb so they could see that Jesus is alive. Lord, I pray that as we're here, that we can accept you as Lord of our lives completely. I pray for the one who's wondering if you're real or who's wondering what will be that difference for me to accept you in my heart. I pray, God, that you'll just give them a word. Just like you did with Mary Magdalene, you called her by name. I pray, God, that you will do something significant in their life, even right now, in their hearts, God, so they can know that you're real and accept you as Lord of their lives. But I also pray, God, for all of us. I pray that we just always remember the finished work, the death, the burial, but also the resurrection. Because without the risen body, we don't have a resurrection. But we're grateful that we have the witnesses of these people, God. So I pray, God, that you'll help us that we continue to trust that you rose from the dead so we can worship you in a day like today. I pray that you remain the center of all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.